Hey friends, welcome back to another Seed Talk with Lisa and Lane. Although we have an add-on this week. Hi, Rhonda. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Lane. Hello. Welcome. Hey, Lane. Hi. Y'all, y'all aren't even going to believe this week's talk. I'm so excited about it. And if you're not actually watching us on YouTube, Lane has antennas on. Yes. Rhonda has a bug t-shirt on. And I have my cup of death bug exterminator tool here. Yes, and I just have to point out that we were each asked to bring some sort of bug accessory and Lisa went straight for the cup of death. So <laughs> it's, it's exactly right. And I actually have some live victims in here. I'm not victims, live. Um, Specimens? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway. So thank you guys so much for joining us here today. Um, We are just really pleased to bring information that I know is just going to open your eyes. And we're so glad. Rhonda, we consider our resident bug expert. She's a a bug hugger, as I am, and as Lane is. And sometimes that's not exactly the right thing to do. So what are we talking about today, Lane? So today we are going to be talking about a pest. We're going to get a little buggy here on Seed Talk, and it's a pest that bothers a lot of our seed-grown crops, but a lot of other plants as well. They're not very picky, as we're going to learn today. And we're talking about Japanese beetles. So we're going to do a really in-depth discussion. Of course, we're going to talk about treatment and prevention, but we're also going to talk about their life cycle, how they reproduce, what are their favorite plants, how they damage the plants and all sorts of stuff like that. So Rhonda and I have been conspiring about this and we're very excited. She's found out some really fun facts that we're excited to share with everybody. Right, Rhonda? Yeah, some great new stuff, fun things. Yes. You know, you got to find something fun about Japanese beetles. I mean, it's a sport around here. So I'm like chomping at the bit to learn more. So take it away, Lane. Okay, so let's just start, Rhonda, with what is the species name of Japanese beetles? Oh, sure. Papilia, however, wherever you put that emphasis, Japonica. So thus the Japanese beetle. And it is a scarab beetle. Beetle. Beetles, of course, are one of the biggest orders of insects there is. So uh, yeah, Japanese beetles are a scarab beetle. So if you think like the Hercules beetle... uh, Trying to think other ones. June bug, that's a beetle, a uh, scarab beetle. There are a lot of them, the family yes. of scarab beetles. So. Okay. And now I want to talk about what they actually look like. I want to describe their appearance, but I have to make a confession first. I think Japanese beetles are pretty. <laughs> they, of course they are. you do, Lane. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They they definitely catch your eye. That that yeah. green on the back of their, I guess that's their thorax. Um, yeah, and then they have those cute little tufts of hairs on the sides. They're like five little tufts. That's pretty characteristic. And then they have two kind of oversized tufts on their the rear of their abdomen or their, their rear, I should say. Yes. And they have those copper colored wing covers and they have a metallic look to them. I think they look yes. like little jewels. Now I'm sure Lisa doesn't think that they look like little jewels. <laughs> no, I, no, I agree. They are very attractive. I just wish they were attractive in their own native habitat and not over here. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. And how big are they, Rhonda? Would you say in terms of size? Uh, the, I think the females are a little bit bigger. I'd say no bigger than a half inch or smaller than a half inch. Yeah. They're pretty small. Okay. So now I want to talk about 
where did Japanese beetles originate? And then where have they spread to, at least in terms of the United States? So, yeah, they they actually, of course, um, as the name implies, uh, originated from Japan, the main islands of Japan. And uh, they came here suspected like in the roots of azaleas, imported plants, uh, irises. And uh, they were first seen in Riverton, New Jersey. So that's ground zero. And you can see where they have spread the green areas there on the on the map. Um, you can see where they've spread since 1916. They think they might have come in a little bit earlier, but that's when they started to notice a lot of damage and and kind of like a ripple. And, you know, when you throw a pebble in a pond, it goes out from there. The Rocky Mountains are a kind of natural barrier, but they are starting to show up on the other side. And that's because we like to carry plants from point A to point B. Um, so there are populations in in various states across um, the, the western part of our country. So not everybody has to deal with this. You know, we, we've dealt with them so long, we just think everybody has to deal with them. But um, it's mostly on this side of the Mississippi, on the east side of the Mississippi, and not so much on the Gulf, as you can see from that map too. So yes, yeah. And I'm from California originally, and I had never seen a Japanese beetle until we moved here. So so you thought it was pretty at first, and then you yes. realized, yeah. Well, I still, I still think they're pretty. <laughs> so where else in the world are these Japanese beetles found? Um, some parts of Canada. So uh, there are some occurrences in British Columbia, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Ontario, Prince Edward Island, and Quebec. Uh, just recently, well, 2014, they were found in Milan, Italy, which has concerned European countries that they could potentially start moving across Europe. Um, they were found in the southern border of Switzerland in 2017. We found that some parts of, say, the uh, United Kingdom are suitable for the establishment, but I guess because of the, the cooler temperatures, and this applies to northern parts of Europe and, uh, and of Canada, they probably would be on a two-year life cycle. So that would probably limit the numbers and the impact of them being in the, in the environment. So Rhonda, how do these insects move around? How do they get from place to place? Well, they can fly. They're not great flyers because they got to open up those uh, hard outer wings to fly. Quite often when they're disturbed, they just drop to the ground, um, which is handy in some cases. Um, but yeah, they can fly distances. So they can fr fly from your neighbor's uh, yard to yours very easily. When they are in their uh, larval stage, they don't really travel that much other than up and down in the soil, um, depending on the temperature um, and their food source. They can they can go, I guess, laterally, but not that much. So, but flying is the way they usually get around. Okay. Yeah. So before we get into more details about them, how do they actually damage plants? Some insects chew, some insects suck. What do the Japanese beetles do to plants? They definitely chew and they seem to chew between the lines, basically. Um, so as you can see in the picture here in this leaf, they are chewing in between the veins in the leaf. And so it ends up kind of looking skeletonized um, when they're done with it. Um, and they like to get together when they're doing this. So the, the plants actually put off, a, I guess, I don't know, it's a, a chemical release, and that attracts other Japanese beetles to the plant. So, you know, one beetle might not do much damage, but when the plant is stressed and puts off those chemicals and there, you know, there's other things going on with pheromones and the beetles, it just attracts a whole bunch of them. They can do a lot of damage in short order. So um, they eat the fruit of plants, they eat blooms. So they're all around. And when they're a larvae, they eat the roots, mostly of turf grasses, but uh, they will eat the roots of plants too, other plants. Yes. 
I happen to have a sample of a damaged marigold. It actually has some live um, pests in it. And this is how the marigolds look. Um, it's like you have little bad spots mm -hmm. and start pulling around in there and you find them just buried deep down in there. So Lisa, these damaged flowers, like the damaged marigold that you just showed, is that something that you wouldn't be able to sell once it has that damage on it? Yeah. So it just really damaged. I mean, this is kind of an older marigold, but typically, especially if there's several blooms out there right now that are just starting. I mean, they, they're that first starting to just open and they're beautiful, except they have a black center. And that's because Mary, um, Japanese beetles have been homing in in the centers of them. So yeah, it definitely deems them unsellable, totally destroys the crop. And we typically kind of just leave those blooms on there because instead of encouraging them to go to new blooms, we just leave the old blooms and let them just continue to actually, you know, damage the same old ones. So Rhonda, what do Japanese beetles like to eat and what seem to be their favorite plants? I mean, they like, there's like over 300, close to 400 different plants um, that they will eat. You know, roses are at the top, um, things like that. Grapes, you know, vineyards and orchards don't like them. Um, yeah, and zinnias were, of course, always at the, the, the bottom of the list. But my sister has raspberries. Oh, my goodness, do they love raspberries. So, <laughs> um, yeah, they eat the leaves. They will eat the fruit. Yeah, it's, um, that's the number one up there, so. One interesting thing I read is that they have really strong enzymes in their gut, which makes them able to handle a lot of different chemicals. So they have a very wide range of plants that they are able and willing to eat. And it's mm -hmm. a lot more than some other bugs that might be more specialized or particular. They eat so many different plants. So speaking of which, Lisa, what flowers do you find them the most attracted to on the farm? So um, for years and years, we've always known that they the first place we see them typically are marigolds. Second runner up to that would be zinnias. And it just really depends on the um, population of how many of them you're going to see. So this year, honestly, has not been bad at all. Um, this is kind of a different, we had a slow start to our spring. And I just don't know if the big wave hasn't come yet. Um, because yeah. I mean, we definitely handpick every morning. So I go straight to the marigold patch every morning with my soapy water. And then I'll kind of, you know, and as we're harvesting, I'll take note. It's like, oh, look, now there's a few over here on the Cosmo bed. Maybe I should walk this bed too. So in the amaranth, I mean, they will, as you said, that's really interesting to know that they'll basically can digest anything. Um, because we find them around and especially if it gets crowded over on the marigolds. Um, so yeah. but we never, we never find them on Lysianthus or I did see a few on the Rudbeckias, but never on the status. You know what I mean? So they definitely like, I think bigger blooms. I think the blooms might be like the delicacy part for them. Yeah. And it is true also, like Rhonda pointed out, that when they eat these leaves and things, they release volatile compounds and that attracts more beetles, which is why sometimes you'll see a cluster of beetles on one plant and then the same type of plant next to them might only have a few. So that's another thing to be aware of and something that I've heard it's a good idea if you're getting rid of beetles to sometimes just clip that foliage off and dispose of it because it's attracting other beetles to it. Yeah. 
That's a good point too. Um, you know, and sometimes you do exactly find like 15 or 20 all right. clustered up together. Um, and a lot of times, especially on Xenia plants, that's how I first see them. I don't actually see the bugs. I see what I call the lacy leaf, the leaf right. where they've eaten all the between the lines gone. And then you start investigating and sure enough, the beetles have landed. Right. And they usually usually start at the top too, to top of the plant and work their way down. So, which is helpful. It's better than yeah. starting at the bottom and then you discover it. Right. It's true. Thank you guys for that. Yeah. Giving us that anyway, right? Do you know where else we find them? Is on our Virginia creeper. Oh, yeah, Virginia. Mm-hmm. oh my goodness. I mean, you can go over there and just scoop off layers of them sometimes. Right. Yeah. And you think, okay, they can eat the Virginia creeper. But like I said earlier, if they were like, okay, we're, I'm tired of the Virginia creeper, they can fly back over to the zinnias and, and right. feed on those again. So I guess it's good to get rid of them anywhere you, you see them. So, you know, for us here on the farm, the big point of eliminating all those that we can is because the Japanese beetles, from what I read, is between 40 to 60 eggs they can lay, a female can lay in a season. So every one that I eliminate potentially is eliminating 40 to 60 the next year. Um, And that's what drives me to actually do, you know, a Japanese beetle hunt every morning during the height of the season. Um, Because I don't mind having insects on my farm, obviously, you know, we are a big host and so many beneficials, but these guys are like the Terminator. They'll eat anything and everything, and they're just very, very damaging. All right. So now I want to talk about these beetles life cycle, their lifespan. Can you walk us through the life cycle of a Japanese beetle, Rhonda? Sure. Yeah. Luckily, they only have one generation per year. Um, most of their life is spent underground. The biggest part of it is when they overwinter as that third instar. So they they do complete metamorphosis. They start as an egg um, after the adults mate, and then they go through three instars. That third instar is where they spend most of like nine to 10 months out of the year, lower down in the ground, I guess, depending on where you are, um, so to stay away from the cool uh, or the cold temperatures. As the days start to warm, they start to come closer to the surface and feed on the roots of turf grass. It's like one of the number one turf grass pests. So if you, not so much for someone like me who grows the Virginia blend, um, but if you're a golf course um, person, (laughs) that's that kind of grass is what I'm talking about. They can really do a lot of damage, Um, but that's when they're feeding on the roots of um, of those plants. Another way that they can damage your lawn. If you have a lot of grubs in your lawn, um, you can get a lot of damage from animals digging in your yard. So apparently skunks like grubs, um, the, of course, moles and um, I think raccoons will eat them. I think foxes do too, don't they? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So if they, if you, if you have things digging in your yard, that could be an indicator too. So, and, and cause a lot of damage. So, so the grubs themselves can do damage underground, but then also the grubs attract things that want to eat them, which causes you damage as well. Although they may actually be helping you control your Japanese beetle population. Right. Can you describe what someone would see in the ground? These Japanese beetle grubs, what do they look like? They're pretty disgusting. Look, if you've ever seen, they're like an inch long, a fat white larva or grub, a white grub. Um, And there are lots of beetle grubs in the ground. 
Um, there's another one that does a lot of damage to turf grass too, the chafer um, beetle. But Japanese beetle, apparently, if you want to ID them, um, compare them to other grubs you might have in your lawn, they have a very interesting hair pattern on their bottom, on their butt. Oh. So if you get out your magnifying glass and you see a little V-shape of hairs on the bottom of the white grub you have, that's a Japanese beetle. So a beetle grub. All right. Hey, we need to do that. We got to do that this winter. We should, we should. And actually they recommend that you, if you're really concerned about this, if you want to do, you know, see what your threshold is for the numbers of grubs you have or the numbers of Japanese beetles you're going to have, if you dig like a square foot um, or less and then do math. But if you do a square foot of turf and flip it over and count the number of grubs, if you have like 10 or 12, that's that's a lot of grubs in one area. Yeah. They're going to be a lot of damage there. So like you said, the Japanese beetle grubs have a distinct look to them. There are other grubs that might turn into other beetles, right? Right, right. Turn into other kinds of beetles that right. may or may not be damaging to your to your landscape or your, right. to your lawn. So, right. Yeah. So can you just walk us through, we are looking at a graphic if you're watching over on YouTube, but for people that are just listening, we're looking at this life cycle illustration from USDA. Can you just tell us what we're looking at? Describe it to us. Yeah, I guess we should start on the left around June or so. That's when the the adult Japanese having pupated under the ground is going to come out looking for food. Um, So they'll find their food source and the eggs are usually laid very close to that food source. How convenient. Um, So they can find the food source as soon as they come out. And not long after that, uh, they're going to mate and then uh, the female will lay eggs. Generally, she feeds for a while and then she goes underground and uh, lays several eggs. She does that a couple times, probably a dozen times, laying anywhere from 40 to 60 eggs. So she doesn't lay them all at once. She does a little bit at a time. They last probably 30 to 45 days as an adult. And then by the end of the, you know, August, September, we're starting to, the numbers are starting to go down. But by that point, they've already laid eggs. They like to lay eggs in moist soil and and generally low, you know, ideal those that golf course where the grass is very short. Right. So if you don't irrigate and you cut your grass at the highest setting, that can help uh, eliminate some of the egg laying. And if the soil becomes very dry, those eggs will become desiccated in the soil. So, um, so that can help cut down on the number of larvae that survive the winter. So, or hatch out at all. So, so they um, would love to lay their eggs in moist soil under a shortly cut lawn, basically. Correct. Correct. Um, So, and they encourage in a lot of places, like say Colorado, there are some limited places, small pockets uh, that they're trying to get people to cooperate and not water their lawns in that late July, August, September, uh, to to hopefully um, cut down on the survival of those eggs. Yeah. And then you were talking to me earlier about a really interesting indicator about when the Japanese beetles emerge, something else that's growing or happening at that same time. Right. And and I'll give you the site for this. That's the um, USA for National Phenology Network. Phenology, not where they studied the bumps on your head, but (laughs) phenology where they study the connections um, between plant, different species of either plants or animals, you know, weather's different every year. We don't know when things, we can say a general time when things are going to come out based on that weather for that year. But by studying phenology, um, when things develop, whether it be a plant or an insect, because they are interdependent on each other, um, depends on growing degree days on this mix. This can make your head hurt, but growing degree days is you're looking at Actually, there's a formula. It's the maximum temperature and the minimum temperature um, added together and then divided by two 
And then I think you subtract, yeah, you subtract 50, which is the base. 50 degrees is that base temperature, I think, that's used most often. So as soon as you get it, you're starting to get positive numbers, those add up each day. Each day you have a positive number. You add them up as the spring and you go into summer. For Japanese beetles, it's like a thousand growing degree days before they emerge. So, and that, again, it's like 950 to 1,030, depending on where you are in the country. Um, but an, an interesting plant indicator, a phenology indicator is chicory. So if you're riding along in the country and you see that pretty blue flower, wildflower, non-native, um, on the side of the road blooming, more than likely Japanese beetles are also out there because mm. so it's another one of those indicators like, you know, we why we prune, say, roses when the forsythia blooms because it's, it's generally you can count on that. So. How interesting. So we are located in southeastern Virginia. Lisa, what time of year do you seem to notice them emerging and how long do they seem to stick around for? So it can vary from year to year, but in general, June, late June is kind of when we start seeing them. And July is the month um, that we really sustain the most damage and see their presence. And when we're doing what we call Japanese beetle hunting, you know, and so the way that we, this is one of the few bugs, there's two bugs or pests that we actually feel like handpicking really helps us to eliminate future generations. And Japanese beetles is at the top of the list. The other one is the leaf, the four, is it the leaf footed east, the Eastern leaf footed bug. Mm -hmm. And that's the stink bug family. And they kind of congregate kind of the same that Japanese beetles do. So it makes them super easy. And I use the same method. There's actually some of each in my cup I'm getting ready to show you. Um, and so what we have found is they're super easy to just go out in the morning. And I take a two cup measuring cup. If you're watching, I'm showing my one of my cups from this morning and I fill it about halfway with water. But first I put a little squirt of dishwashing liquid. And then I just literally will use a demonstration. If this is the flower out in the garden, I just kind of put my cup underneath of it and use my other hand to tap the bloom. And as Rhonda mentioned, they often drop is their defense mechanism. They drop right into the bowl. But so interesting that after you've started doing this for a few days, and because we have leaves in some of our pathways, which means they hear you coming, after about four days, they start dropping when they hear you coming. I mean, it is really very interesting. It's kind of crazy. Um, but I am like a champion Japanese beetle hunter. Um, I can spot them at, you know, 10 feet. I can see their little butts and flowers. Um, or their damaged foliage. Um, and so I just typically in the morning and at night, late in the, the before dusk, they've kind of gone back to their spots and they're hanging out there. So they're really easy to find in the heat of the day. They're out flying around. I mean, I have been bumped into, I'm pretty sure that they're like trying to take me out, um, <laughs> bumped into me during the heat of the day. But the soapy water coats them and does kill them. Um, and then I just dump this down my toilet and flush it just as a precaution. I don't want anybody making it out of my cup alive. Um, and I catch hundreds and hundreds. If you multiply that times 50, perhaps that's a significant, you know, reduction. And we, of course, have birds eating them and stuff, but we have far more insects 
to eat than we do, you know, birds to eat them. One of the things about the water, did you know that soap, it's the soap, not that it kills them, but that it but breaks the sur- it breaks the surface. So otherwise they'd sit yes. on the water. Yeah. Yeah. The soap is a surfactant. So it breaks the surface tension of the water and causes the beetles to sink. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about some other prevention and treatment options and the pros and cons of each. So prevention, we already talked about maybe letting your lawn grow taller and not watering as frequently so that you don't create the perfect environment for those eggs to be laid. What other prevention tactics do you have to recommend? Planning a diverse, you know, as diverse of, uh, you know, if you, if you have all roses in your yard or all raspberries in your yard or linden trees, um, knowing that these are um, favorites of the Japanese beetle, you got to expect them to show up. So um, you're just laying out the buffet for them. So having a diverse landscape helps quite a bit. And then, and I know Lisa's talked about this before too, having um, plants that attract those insects that may parasitize or, or kill the, the adults or the larvae. So that's a good thing too, having those diverse, especially small little flowers, those umbral flowers, like, you know, dill and things like that can, um, can attract those, those parasites. Right. So which insects eat Japanese beetles? Things that I um, read about were ones that were actually introduced to introduced species. They actually introduced them like I think in the 20s. Um, one is a wasp and one is a fly. Uh, so the fly, I believe, came also from Japan. It's called a winsome fly. And there's some areas that since the 20s, those flies have gotten pretty well established and they they parasitize the, the Japanese beetles. Um, they quite often do it when they're distracted <laughs> um, they will actually lay the eggs on the back of their thorax and one of them will burrow into the beetle. So you got to check your beetles to see if you have any eggs on those beetles oh, uh, because love. that beetle is not going to last much longer, um, a couple days. And apparently the first thing they attack when they enter the body is the flight muscles. So they can't really go anywhere after that. And then they're pretty much done for. So, and of course you want to if you can save those little ones, you could save those. So just like any other parasitoid, you want that wasp or fly to mature in or on that beetle or larvae so that it can be there next year and help you out with that predation. So Right. So if you see those little eggs on a beetle, leave it. Do not put right, it in right. a cup of soapy water. Exactly. Um, and another one is the... Uh, we actually have a native wasp. It's a digger wasp. And uh, one of the other digger wasps is cicada wasp. If anybody knows cicada killers, um, they can actually take down an, an, a cicada and um, make it their own. Um, but they're, it's a very cool wasp. It's called a um, blue winged wasp or scolia dubia. Um, and it is a native wasp. And I'm sure you've seen them flying around their, your yard. If you look them up, they're black. Their wings are kind of black. Uh, the end of their abdomen is brown. And then they have two orange spots on the side. It's a very common wasp to see in your yard. And they're hmm. one that they're digger wasps. So what they do is they go into the ground, find that larva and lay an egg. Uh, par- well, they parasitize, they paralyze it first, sting it to paralyze it. And then they lay their egg. I believe in their case, they lay it on it, um, not in it. So how efficient. I know. I mean, there's telling you. books out there. Yeah. I love, love, so wasps. I love wasps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's funny. I was telling Rhonda before we really encourage all these types of wasps in our yard, all those little flowers that wasps love lots of herbs and umbels. We have so much of that growing And the first year we moved here, we had so many Japanese beetles and I just kind of have left them alone. 
And I'm hoping that maybe these wasps are getting to them because we just don't see a lot of Japanese beetles anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I also told Rhonda, we had really bad tomato hornworms the first year that we moved here. Horrible. They were just covering the plants and we did absolutely nothing except plant more and more of the types of flowers that we knew would attract wasps to our garden. Like I mentioned before, things with really tiny florets seem to attract them like oregano, dill, parsley, mountain mint, those types of things. So we planted a bunch of those. And soon enough, we started noticing the cocoons down the backs of the hornworms. And we have not had a tomato hornworm problem in years. Wow. And I yeah. just wonder if it's nature starting to hopefully take care of its own problems. She <laughs> can take care of herself if we just get out the way. Yes. So what other treatment options are there, Rhonda? Well, of course, the traps. Everybody like wants a simple thing and have a trap, but... Um, unless you can talk your neighbors into having those traps on their property, um, you really want to keep the trap at least 50 away, 50 feet away from whatever you're trying to keep them off of. Um, so if you've got, you know, roses, you know, you want to have them on the complete other side of your yard, or like I said, in your neighbor's yard, because um, it, it will attract them. Some of them will make it in the trap. Some of them won't. won't. You will definitely attract a lot of and kill a lot, but um yeah, a lot will get get away. So um, that's one option. Um, another option for just catching them on the plants is, um, <laughs> I just saw this, is you, know, you can buy a bug vac or those car vacs. So that's right. another way to go out there and instead of drop them in the water, um, you suck them up and then dispose of them later. Um, of course, once you use that for catching bugs, you don't really want to use it in your car or, yeah. So um, another thing you can do, especially if you have fruit, um, that they're attracted to, like say the raspberries, um, don't leave that, you know, if you've got rotten fruit or, you know, overripe fruit, you know, throw, get rid of it. Um, cause that's one less thing that's going to attract them. So yeah, cutting the grass at the highest, highest level is one way to help cut down on those things. Right. And how about two grub related controls, milky spore and nematodes? Yeah. As far as, um, that's another biological, um, treatment. So that is a bacterium. Um, they started using that in like the 1940s and it's sometimes, I think it has to get to a certain level and sometimes it's not, sometimes it's effective, fairly effective. Uh, I don't think it's being recommended that much anymore. It's not inexpensive and it's not always, um, effective. So, uh, mil- milky spore. And then the other one is they're beneficial nematodes that you can, unfortunately the other, the wasp and the fly, you can't, you can't buy those commercially, but the beneficial nematodes, you can buy those. Um, it's got a real long name. It's called, well, I'll just say HB. Uh, it's first name. The genus is starts with an H, HB nematodes. And those are, they'll, they'll kill the larva. So you can apply those to your lawn. And that's one that, um, with with any of these things, you really have to follow the directions. You have to know um, the life cycle when, you know, what time of year you're putting them down. Otherwise, you're just wasting your money. So, yeah. Where would you get that? Um, there are a number of biological control um, companies. Just look up biological controls. Another creature we should have mentioned that likes to eat them. Rhonda, you were telling me okay. your chickens... Yeah, they, they, the chickens will eat them. So that's one thing. If you've got uh, chickens in, you know, certain times of year, you know, when those grubs are coming up or going down, they, they'll eat the beetles, but I mean, they, you can't direct, you can't tell a chicken what to eat. They're going to eat whatever or scratch, whatever they're going to scratch. Um, but yeah, the larvas I've, I've actually found larva and just, you know, thrown it in into the chicken coop. So 
Yeah. But Don't still the top recommendation. And I took this shot of Lisa this morning. If you're watching over on YouTube, the top recommendation is the very simple cup of soapy water. Correct. It, yeah. yeah. It's quiet. It's simple. Anybody can do it. It's inexpensive. And the plumber husband said you can flush them with no problem. So just give us your little recipe again. It's just a little squirt of dishwashing liquid and fill it halfway up with water. And, um, yeah, it works like a, it works like a gym and harvest earlier than later. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Rhonda, do you have any beetle resources for people wanting to learn more? Um, I'd say any, any extension, if you look up Japanese beetle extension, um, you're going to get a local research uh, university. So there are a lot, like I said, Minnesota, you know, places where it's just starting to really become a problem. I mean, the East coast, you know, we've, we've done them for however many years that is, uh, you know, almost a hundred years. Um, almost a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, the, the, as they spread across the country and they will, those universities like Michigan, um, Minnesota, Colorado, you can read new research. So, well, thank you so much, Rhonda. We appreciate you doing all this research and sharing with us. So everyone listening, please tell us which pest you would like us to cover next. Because Rhonda, you're ready to go, right? You're ready to I research am. and look up some new things to share with us. So everyone, if you're over on YouTube, you can leave a comment with which pest you would like us to cover next, as well as how do you deal with Japanese beetles if you do? I would like to know, and I'm sure everybody here would. And remember that if you're listening to us in a podcast app, you can submit topic requests or suggestions using the form linked in the show notes. So thank you so, so much for joining us. We appreciate all of you listening and watching. Make sure to leave us a review or a rating in a podcast app. And like I said, a like and comment over on YouTube. We love talking with all of you and hearing what you have to say. Thanks again, Rhonda. Sure. Thank you, guys. You know, like I love to talk about bugs. Bug hubbers, we are. So friends, if you want to learn more about the work we're doing at the Gardener's Workshop, head on over to thegardenersworkshop.com. And so until we meet again, bye Lane, bye Rhonda. Bye Lisa. Bye. Bye.